So uh, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone asks or someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Boy, that's a, this is a hard one this morning. I'm not going to lie. We're working through James. Today, in this passage, I think we come to what is probably the theological high point of James's epistle. I think this is the, like the, I mean, this is the real heavy part right here. The dominant thrust of James's letter, as we've talked about in the past, is to show us and to teach us what it looks like to live and walk in the way that Jesus has given us, to, to claim Christ as Savior, to trust Him for righteousness, and to follow Him as Lord. What does it look like to do that? You know, remember, we spent a lot of time on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus telling us what this is the way. This is, this is what righteousness is, and now James says, here's how you live it out. This is what it's got to look like in your life. This is how you apply it to your life. A lot of practical application in James. Up to this point, and even after it, James talks about faith in Christ that's alive. Amen. Faith that's living and not dead, that is worth something and not worthless, that's useful and not useless. And even after this point, we we have language about that. We'll get to some of it in chapter 4. As we read through James, and we've already come through chapter 1, as we come through chapter 1, he's already broached this subject and addressed it back in verse 22. You can just look up a few verses and see. You remember when when we read that and he he talked about um, being hearers of the word, being doers of the word and not hearers only. And as we read through that section, through those, those few verses in chapter 1, I think rightfully so, our minds, when we're just reading it, going through it, our, our minds practically go inward. You know, we, we look at our own obedience and the, how we're, you know, inward examination and how we're following the Word um, and, and doing and, and not just hearing. You remember the language that James uses 
back in chapter 1, particularly in verse 22 through, I think, 25 or something like that. He, he talks about a mirror. Remember that? Someone who's a hearer of the words, like someone who looks into a mirror intently at himself. So there's that language of self-examination, right? And so I think rightfully we, we go to that and we examine ourselves and what is, you know, what are our motivations, that kind of thing. And then he talks about the guy who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Now he's blessed. In fact, let's just let's just go back up to James 1:25. Just just turn back a page or maybe just scroll up. Uh, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, a few weeks ago, we, we covered this, and I, I preached on it. Uh, you know, part of James's theology of the importance of the word in our lives, there are three parts, the word that saves, the word that uh, sanctifies, and the word that sustains. And this was the, the word that sustains, if you want to go back and catch that, that message. There's a grammatical construction here that's important for us. And, and I'm only going back and reviewing it because it's important for today as well. The, the one who looks into the law of liberty and perseveres being. That's the only command in this, in this passage here is, is to be, to be doers, right? The one who looks in the law of liberty and perseveres being. And I, and I as we approach this passage from that point of view, James is telling us that in doing the Word of God, humble, sacrificial obedience, it is effective in keeping you in the law of liberty. The persevering, which is the strength to stay, persevering, the strength to stand and to stay, staying power that is produced by being a doer of the Word, not just a hearer. It's persevere being. Now remember that I told you that when he talks about that blessedness, he said he is blessed in all of his doing. That blessedness is in that he perseveres. If you just go back up a few more verses to verse 12, Jesus, or James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So the brother who remains steadfast, that's the one who perseveres, right? That's what persevering is. It's remaining steadfast is blessed because he receives a crown of life. He is blessed in his doing. He is blessed in perseverance in the law of liberty, which is produced by being a doer of the word. And then further down, verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1, which we, again we covered a few weeks ago, James tell us, tells us that true religion controls the tongue and it, it helps those who are afflicted. And now here in chapter 2, James gets into some of the fundamental applications of this principle. The principle that real faith, true faith, alive faith is faith that acts. It does. I should probably put it this way. Real, alive faith is proven to be real and alive through the fruit of gospel love. Real, I'm going to say it again, real, alive faith is proven to be real and alive through the fruit of gospel love. So, James is writing, and we talked about his audience before, he's writing to, to Hebrews who are in the dispersion, who are scattered out abroad, and, and uh, there are many people in that day, because of their upbringing, because of their culture and their heritage, 
And there are, just, there are many people today, for different reasons, who feel like that just because they know all the right verses, I can quote Isaiah to you, just because they, they keep all the right feasts and they they're even uh, agree with all the right doctrines, you know, just because of that, then that, that saves them. It's like asking someone today, well, how, how do you know that, that you're saved? How do you know that you're you're going to heaven, and, and then they respond to you with something like, well, I, you know, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, and I'm, I'm a generally good person. But then you look at their life, and beyond that confession, whether they, there's, there's a, just a verbal confession along with the mental agreement with that confession, there's, there's no real fruit. There's no other evidence of their life that says, yeah, this is, this is true. So, the central question that James asks in this passage that we read this morning in chapter 2, we see it right at the very beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James asks, can that faith save him? Is this thing worth anything? Faith that, is, that professes all the right things says all the right things, but doesn't do anything. Then he spends the next 12 verses or so in an effort to answer that question for our benefit and for God's glory, of course. I, I heard one preacher illustrate the question like this. He tells a story of when he was a, a young man in, in the 1970s. He was in college. He was a relatively new Christian, so he had that, that Christian zeal about him. You know, i got to tell the world about this Jesus that I have come to know. And this was back in a time when uh, people still used to hitchhike. They don't do that much anymore, but they still used to do that back in the 70s because, you know, it was, it was, we didn't have the Internet, so people didn't know about, you know, crimes and stuff like that as much. So anyway, he said he caught a, a long ride with the truck driver. And he was eager to turn the conversation towards the Bible and towards the faith. He said for two hours they drove and they, they had a, a lively and, and uh, you know, zealous discussion about the Bible and about faith. But after about two hours, the, the driver finally looked at him and he said, Look, you know, I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that I am a sinner. And I know that I need to be saved. And I know that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again so that I can be saved. And then he said, but I'm a married man and I'm on the road nine months out of the year. I'm never at home. I have girlfriends in cities all over the country and I'm just not willing to give that up. Is this man a Christian? I mean, he has faith, right? He says he believes. He's made the right profession. He has the right knowledge. He believes that Jesus died and rose. He believes that we need forgiveness for our sins. He confesses that those things are true. But beyond the confession or profession... What fruit is there? Is this the kind of faith that will save him? Here's another example. Let's say that you know a, a wealthy businessman who says that he is a Christian. 
He, he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, so he says. He believes that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. He goes to church somewhat regularly. He's very interested in obtaining eternal life. But he says, through your discussions with him about the faith and about Christian living, he says, you know, there's one thing I just can't get behind that I'm just, I'm just not willing to do. Why should I give my money to help some poor person? No one ever helped me. I made it on my own. I built this business on my own. No one gave me a leg up. Why should I give my hard-earned money for someone who won't work for themselves? Is that the kind of faith that saves? That's the question that James is asking us this morning. Can that faith save? If you say that you have faith, but you have no works to prove your faith, then the faith that you say you have, according to James, is worthless. It's dead. Now, the question is addressed in James's time to, to James's church. It's a real issue for the church at that time. It is also a very real issue for the church today. Many of us know people who are like that truck driver and who are like that businessman. They, they go to church from time to time. They accept the Bible diagnosis of the human condition that we are all lost, that we are all sinners who need, uh, who need to be saved. They understand how Jesus' life and death and resurrection fix that relationship. They, they like to read uh, spiritual things and even talk about spiritual things. They, they know the central teachings of the Christian faith. They're pleasant people to be around. When conversation turns to Jesus and, and what happens after death, they sound like believers. They sound like they have their theology lined up. They're pretty orthodox in their, their way of thinking about spiritual things. They may even be decent neighbors and they may do community service here and there. But there's little distinctively Christian about their behavior. There's no real self-sacrifice. There's no real costly obedience. No good deed that goes against their grain. Their human nature grain. Nothing that challenges their very well-designed life. They're very comfortable. James says, what good is that kind of faith? And the assumed answer is that it isn't good for anything. It's dead. You've done nobody any good. So he gives us four case studies. And we're going to go through each one of them, hopefully, uh, in the amount of time that I have. There are two case studies on what dead faith looks like. And there are two case, case studies on what alive faith looks like. We'll take them in order. So first up, we have the two case studies on dead, worthless faith. Faith that is dead, that cannot save. There's nothing to justify it. There's nothing to prove it. I find it interesting how James orders these case studies. It's not interesting. It's actually kind of divine when you think about it. Do you remember the two great commandments? And I know I mention these all the time. But, I mean, Jesus said the whole law hangs on them. The first one was that you love God with everything, all your 
your heart and all your body and all your strength and your mind. Love him with everything you've got, your whole being. And the second, second commandment is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hangs all of the law. We just, on Wednesdays, we've been through, going through the Ten Commandments. We just finished the last one, thou shalt not covet. Everything, all of those, all that discussion, everything we talked about hangs on these two commandments. Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. So, the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, James handles first. Verse 15 through 17, we see the first case study has to do with how our worthless confession of faith, a faith that is dead, is useless toward loving our neighbor because there's no fruit of gospel love, no action to back it up or to justify that confession. Remember, James, he just asked us, can that faith save you? And here's his first point. Verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith, if it does, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, we could, we could spend all morning talking about the problems in, in that kind of behavior, why it's wrong, how it looks down on the, the portion who needs. I mean, this is the, the biblical equivalent of let them eat cake. Do you all remember that, let them eat cake? Okay, this is the biblical equivalent of that. Someone is hungry, and they're poorly clothed, and for whatever reason, they have not received the promised the promise to the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And, and, and it may be that God intends for you to be the answer to that prayer, for, for at least for that day, and possibly for, for many days, that He may be intend you to be the answer to give us this day our daily bread. James says that, that genuine faith, faith that is alive and that is active and that is not dead, it, it does something. It doesn't just say something, but it does something. It doesn't say, go, I sure hope that you find something to eat and I sure hope that you stay warm, well wishes to you, and then it doesn't do anything to follow that up. Remember Jesus, what he said about if you clothed me and if you feed me, is Matthew 25, verse 36. Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him. So who's answering? Righteous, okay? And they answered, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. True faith, alive faith, meets the clear and present need of brothers and sisters. It's not just kind words and wishes. Now, it's, it's not wrong to say kind things. It's not wrong to give well wishes. It's not wrong to say, may God be with you, or I'm going to pray for you. Those things aren't wrong. The problem is that when we say those, you know, well wishes, the Lord be with you, may God be with you, I pray, I'm going to pray for you, that often stands in the place of, I will be with you. It's like, I'll pray for you, 
I'm going to pray for you. You know, you, I see that you have a problem. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God will help you and that God will meet your need because I'm certainly not going to. And that's subtle in our hearts. It may not be that brazen, but it's subtle for us. It's a religious cover for a failure to act. And if you're back in Matthew 25, you look at the very next verses, uh, verse 41. Jesus says, then he will say to those on his left. Now, he was just talking to the righteous who, who fed the hungry, who went to visit the sick, who went to visit those in prison, who clothed the naked. Now he's talking to those on his left, and he says, depart from me, you cursed, to eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And, and what was it? That, that, that condemned them. What was the condemnation of those who were cursed, on, who were on the left? I'm not talking about political left, though I guess I could be. He, he says, verse 42, he says, this is what your condemnation was. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. There was no fruit of gospel love to justify their, their claim of faith. Remember, Jesus said in that day they're going to say, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful, miraculous things we did. Did we not cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? And he said, yeah, but you didn't do these things. You didn't do this. Their faith wasn't real. And we know it wasn't real. Because they did not welcome the stranger or clothe the poor or care for the sick. There was no fruit of gospel love to justify their profession of Lord. It is impossible to say in the same sentence, Lord, no, or no, Lord. If he's Lord, it's always yes, period. Oh, he's not Lord. Because now you're calling the shots. There's no fruit of gospel love in their profession of faith. In other words, it's faith, as James puts it, by itself. Faith without works. Which is what James says in verse 17. So also faith by itself that does not have works is dead. So also in the same way that just saying, be warm, be fed, but then not offering any kind of help, any kind of clothing, any kind of food, is worthless to the neighbor in need. Your faith by itself, your faith without works, is worthless. Now don't, don't misunderstand me. We are saved, saved, justified, made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone. There's nothing that we can do to merit or earn salvation. It comes by faith alone in Christ alone, but faith never remains alone. It does not ever remain alone. Faith is what justifies the soul before God, and that living faith produces works of gospel love that is the natural fruit of faith that saves. If you go to a tree that does not bear fruit, that is supposed to bear fruit, something is wrong with the tree. Amen. An apple tree doesn't produce apples, something is wrong with the apple tree. A fig tree, to give you a biblical example, that does not produce figs is cursed. There's something wrong with the fig tree. 
Faith that remains alone, faith that is by itself, chooses comfort over compassion. It does not produce gospel love. It does not love your neighbor as yourself. Case study number two. James covers the first commandment, love God with all that you are. In verse 18, it's almost as if he's anticipating an objection being raised as he's writing this. Some people are going to say, I'm going to raise an objection here, so I'm going to give them an answer to that. Um, you all do that when you think about conversations. You know, we all do that. We think about the objections, and we, we have those mental debates in our head before we go actually do the conversation. That's what James is doing, having that, that debate on paper before he actually has to get there and, and have the debate. He says, verse 18, Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, James answers. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the objection that that James raises, that he's attempting to answer, the objection seems to me to be that faith and works in the the audience he's talking to are treated like like the spiritual gifts are treated. Like some are given uh, at some times by the Spirit and some are given another by the Spirit at other times. It's like saying you have the gift of works, but I have the gift of faith. So you are uh, specially enabled to do good deeds and to do good works, but I am specially enabled to read and study and know all there is to know about faith, about the faith. But James, he bucks that. He says that's clearly not, not the case. Faith is not apart from works. Faith is proven by works. They go hand in hand. It's like having a friend who, who tells you that he is a brilliant singer. And, you know, y'all are together. This guy talks about, man, I, I can sing. I'm, I was really good in high school. I was top of the choir. I sung in college. I almost had a record deal. I was that good. And you know, every time you're together, you know, and you hear someone singing, he's like, ah, oh, they're a little pitchy. Uh, she's, uh, I could do it better, you know? Well, eventually you're going to come to a point where you're like, well, why don't, why don't you sing? I mean, since you're, you, I mean, we go to church. Why don't you sing in the choir? Why don't you do a song for the, glorify God with your singing? I mean, you, you tell us all the time how, how good you are, right? So, so sing for us. Let's, let's celebrate that together, right? No one's going to believe the guy when he looks at you and says, you know, I don't, I don't have to actually sing to prove to you that I'm a good singer. Look, I know all about music. I can read every note on the page. I know all about harmonies and chords and times and tempos. I can listen to a piece of music and I can pick out the musical themes. I can walk you through the melodic line. I can dazzle you with my knowledge of how music is constructed and what it does to the human soul. How it lifts you up out of your doldrums or or it you know, walks with you in your depression. I can tell you all there is to know about music. I don't have to sing to you to prove to you I'm a good singer. Well, actually you do. (laughs) It's sort of how it works. Back to James's point. Someone might object and say, I I believe in God. I don't got to prove anything to you. I don't got to prove anything to anybody else. This is between me and the Lord. I believe in Him. 
James would say, that's really good for you. The demons believe. They believe better than you do. I guarantee you the demons got better theology than you do. They understand the scripture probably better than you do. The difference is they shudder at it. They have no love in their heart to go with their knowledge. There's no gospel love. Faith that has no fruit of gospel love recoils from the Father rather than running to Him. It recoils in disobedience rather than running to Him to work out your salvation with fear and trembling rather than saying, Lord, fix this. Lord, I, I, have, I have sinful tendencies. I give them to You. It instead runs from the Father and says, these are mine and I want to keep them. Oh, He's, he's, he's the Father. He's like a rebellious child. He's my dad, but I got, I'm going to do what I want to do. You can have all the knowledge of God in the world. You can believe all day that all that knowledge is true. If you do not have gospel love, then your knowledge and belief, your faith by itself will not save you. It's worthless. You have proven nothing. You have shown nothing. And what James says, he says, you know, you, you show me, you say you have faith. I'm going to show you my faith. I'm going to prove it to you through my joyful obedience. Prove it to you through my works. So useless faith. You remember what Jesus said about, about obedience. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if you have love for God, you're going to, do, you're going to obey. You're going to do what God says to do. Useless faith, dead faith, is useless toward our neighbor in loving our neighbor. It's useless toward God in loving God. It's words without action. It's, it's a, a confession without conviction. I've got six minutes. Case study number three. Proven faith, alive faith. These are two case studies about what is proven and alive faith. I'm going to go very quickly through these. I want to cover these last two. He goes in reverse order from what he did before. Before he went, uh, our love for our neighbor, and then he showed us how it's useless uh, in our love toward God. Now he switches it and he says, alive faith is useful in our love toward God. And then he shows us how it's useful in our love toward our neighbor. So that's just that's the, the roadmap. Picking up in verse 20, James says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I gotta, I'm going to prove this to you. Consider the evidence I'm about to offer you. Verse 21. Was Abraham our father? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture is fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, there's, just like with before, there's a whole lot to unpack here. I've got five minutes left to do it. So I'm going to go through this quickly. I would love... To, to go really deep into the theological waters of, of faith and works and Paul and, and, and James, but I'm just going to try to skim the surface because I don't have the time to go really deep into that. It looks like, if you're just reading the surface level, it looks like James is disagreeing with Peter, I mean with Paul, 
Or Paul is disagreeing with James. Remember, Paul preaches a message that just rails against, you know, works of the law, works-based salvation. He preaches a message of salvation by grace through faith alone. He actually says those words. We are saved by grace through faith alone, and that not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. You have no reason to boast other than Christ. You are saved by faith alone. Paul hammers that message. And here, James seems to say, now hold on just a minute. Now wait a minute. He says, you see that a person is justified by works. The thing is, without getting too deep into it, they don't disagree. The Bible does not contradict itself. We accept that the Bible is the holy word of God, which means it is without error in the things that it discusses. It, the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself, but that does not mean that the Bible does not come with complications. Amen. Amen. All right? And the, amen. The things that we, do, that we have to work out, okay? What, what, what is most likely going on here is that they are both, James and, and Paul, are both correcting separate abuses of the doctrine of justification by faith. They're correcting separate abuses of the same ideology, the same doctrine. And I'm giving you this because people like to point to James and Paul and say, See, they disagree. Your Bible is wrong. That's what they want to tell you. You don't have reason because the Bible doesn't even agree with itself. No, it does. It absolutely does. They absolutely agree. They're addressing different abuses of the doctrine of justification by faith. You have to remember that Paul in Romans, where we get most of this language from Paul, he's writing to people of pagan backgrounds. And so the pagan looks at the gospel, and he, the pagan, and remember, they didn't have a New Testament. They, it was being written as they're reading it. Letters from Paul, what they had was a Torah and law and all that, and they're trying to show Jesus Christ in the law. And the pagan looks at this and says, there's no way. There's no way. I mean, I, I, got, I got to be circumcised. I, I, can't, I can't eat any food. All the food that's in our market is offered up to idols. I, I can't, I, there's no way I can't do this. There's no possible way. And so Paul addresses the abuse of the doctrine of, of justification by saying, it's not works of the law that save you. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not food or, 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 or eating this or that. It's faith. You're justified, you're saved by faith. And then James is writing to a wholly different audience. Remember, he's writing to Hebrews. What's, Hebrew, what's the Hebrews' claim to fame? We are the people of God, the seed of Abraham. They are the literal offspring of, of Abraham. I mean, it's ingrained in them. They grew up in the temple. They grew up reading the scripture. They know, you know, we know, I know there is one God. Over all the heaven and all the earth. He is Yahweh. And so they believe that their salvation is secured because of their knowledge of God and their kinship with Abraham. And James says, now wait just a minute. This is not that kind of faith. That kind of faith produces nothing. The faith that saves 
and produces a change in your life, it is proven by your gospel love toward God and toward your neighbor. And I say gospel love. I've used that phrase a few times. I say gospel love because Christ loved us unto death on the cross. It was a love that gave of himself physically, emotionally, spiritually. A love that proved itself by what it did. What if Jesus just said, I came to save, and then didn't do anything about it? That kind of love that, that gives of itself. Remember Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. That self-sacrificing, that has action behind it. That is the fruit of faith that is alive. So, so Paul and James aren't, aren't disagreeing. They're, they're addressing different, different problems, okay? So let's get back to Abraham. Let's do this quickly. James gives the example of Abraham offering Isaac up for sacrifice, right? And this is the commandment of God, and God's testing him to prove his faith. Faith that, is, that justified Abraham. Faith that was counted to him as righteousness. Do you remember the language? So look now at how James puts it. He's very careful to say, or to not say, that it was the work that was counted as righteousness but it was faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not Abraham obeyed God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. They don't disagree. Faith was counted to him as, as righteousness. So when, when he says that, he says the scripture is fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it's counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting something or alluring to something that happened long before this incident with Isaac in Abraham's life. If you remember, many years before, God told Abraham to go outside and look up at the night sky and see if you can count the stars. And it's not like here in, in, in town where you go outside and look up at the night sky and you see maybe a hundred stars. This is out in the desert where the air is clear, there's no city light, to, to, there's no atmospheric disturbances. I mean, you can see the whole Milky Way. Millions of stars. And Abraham, or God says, can you count them? Try to count them. That's how numerous your offspring is going to be. And the Bible says at that point, at that instance, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so James is referring back to the moment when Abraham believed God, a moment where God said, you were justified by your faith. And then he brings up this incident with Isaac. The, the demonstration of that belief so many years ago. It was proof, justification of Abraham's claim of faith. His faith was proven to be alive by his costly obedience to God. And, and Hebrews even tells us that Abraham believed that if he went through with it and sacrificed his son Isaac on the altar, God would raise him from the dead. That's how much faith he had. He was justified by his faith, and his, just, his faith was, was proven. That's how James is using the word justification. He, it was proven by his act of obedience. It was faith made evident in obedience, even in desperate and impossible situations. How many of us can say that? 
that our faith is made evident in obedience even in desperate and impossible situations. Most of us just throw our hands up and say, God, I, I can't. This is too, too much for me. The thing is that that faith that drove him to obedience was based in trust and love for God, Amen. the character of God as displayed to us in the Scripture. So faith alive is useful. Alive faith is useful for us in our love toward God. Lastly, love for one's neighbor. Very briefly, um, this case study. Alive faith is useful in our love towards our neighbor. Verse 25. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you know the story of Rahab, you know that it was because of her belief in God that he is the one true God over all the universe. He said, I know, she said, I know that your God is the God of the heavens and of the earth. And because of her trust in him, if I'm good to you, he will be good to me. If I protect you, he will protect me. That's what she said. So her trust in God, in His goodness, and it was because of that that she hid the Hebrew spies. And that came at great cost, or could have come at great cost to herself. She put herself at great risk by lying to the king and the soldiers of the king. Amen. This is compassion. It is gospel love that is displayed in sacrificial works for others on the basis of trust in God and His goodness. A live faith is useful for our love for others. It moves us to compassionate gospel love for others. Okay, I'm going to conclude with this. I'll be honest with you about this passage. It's a hard one. I, I think that James cuts really, really deep at our, shall I say, Christian pride? Is that a thing? Is that, I mean, that's an oxymoron, right? But it cuts really deep at that, at us thinking, I've got it all figured out. As I was studying this, I, you know, in, in preparing, you know, digging into the text, digging into what it means and, and the implications of it, um, I found myself thinking about all the interactions I've had with people over my life where I've offered mere words. You know, the times where I was busy or, you know, I felt like I, my plate's already too full. I feel like that all the time. Like, I've got a full plate. I've got a full-time job, I've got a family, and I've got a church to worry about. I've got a full plate. So I feel overloaded all the time. It's only by the grace of God that I'm, I'm here doing this now. But, you know, times when you feel like you're overloaded. And so rather than, you know, you choose your words carefully, rather than offering like, well, let me come help you with that. It's, man, I'm, I'm, I'll believe with you. I'll pray with you. Be warm and be fed. It never comes out, be warm and be fed. You know, it's not as callous as that. It's, you know, I'm going to pray for you. Um, I'll stand in agreement with you, that kind of thing. Anybody ever find yourself guilty of that kind of stuff? I'm not the only one. That's, thank you, Lord. <laughs> for me, uh, sometimes it's not even about being busy or feeling overloaded. Sometimes I just simply don't know what to do. 
And, and sometimes there are situations where you don't know what to do. Not every situation is resolved by food and clothing Amen. or money. Amen. Sometimes there are things that are so difficult that you hear about that are just so beyond you Amen. that prayer is the only thing you can even think to offer because it's going to take a miracle to fix this problem. And maybe that's what's needed in those moments, you know, is, is a word of prayer. Maybe that's what God is calling you to in those moments. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good and, and valid thing to do. But don't let I'll pray for you be justification for I'm not going to help you. I think James challenges us in a very direct and very difficult way to consider the health and the nature of our faith. Is it real? Is it alive? And here's how you know. Amen. Amen. You know when we stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, is he going to look at us and say, you know, you, you fed me when I was hungry and you clothed me when I was naked and you visited me when I was sick? Or is he going to say, you didn't do any of those things. I don't know you. I think that's a, an important challenge for us as the body of Christ. Don't you, that's an interesting way of referring to us as the body of Christ. It's, it's the body that does. Right? It's the body that does. There's a reason that they say we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ. We are supposed to go and do. So, again, not a, not, prayer is wonderful, and it's wonderful to offer prayer. And, it's wonderful, and, and there are situations where that may be the only thing you have to offer. But don't ever let that be a, a replacement for what can I do for you? How can I help you? Don't, don't let your not knowing. I'm, you know, my wife, she's so much better at this kind of stuff than I am, at caring for people and knowing, like intuitively knowing, oh, this would encourage them or this would help them, intuitively knowing that. I'm not like that. I need to be knocked on the head sometimes. Um, but I could be better at asking. You know, I just I realized that as I was going through this. I could be better at asking and, and saying, what can I do to help? And if I can't do it, I can't do it. You know, I don't, I don't know how to build a shed. I'm not a carpenter. I can't, I can't help you with that, brother. I'm sorry. Um, but I'll, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I love you all. I'm going to let you go with that. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Um, it hit hard today, at least for me. I pray that you, you send us uh, convicted, Lord, not, not just like punch in the gut, Lord, but that, that we, are, we are challenged to do better. And send us here uh, not only with the challenge, Lord, but with the power by your Spirit to do better. All of our hope is in you. All of our, our, our faith is in you, Lord. Without you, we can do nothing, and we are nothing. So, Father, I pray that you give us the power to be real with our faith, to be real in the world, and real with you and real with others by letting our faith explode in us into loving works of gospel love. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.